Morning. I'm so glad to be with you guys this morning. Uh, me and a crew from our church went to a conference uh, this weekend. It was a blessed conference. We learned so much. was highly encouraged. But as I was sitting there, you know, looking at all these people sitting in the auditorium of this church, I can only think of one thing. I miss my church. And I'm so glad to be with you guys this morning. Although we're going to cover up a difficult topic uh, in way of uh, just the way that it hits us and it can come off. I, I pray that we see it for what it is, and that is not only the truth of Scripture, but the blessing of Scripture uh, for those who have been saved by the knowledge of the Word of God, uh, by responding to the gospel of Christ that is revealed to us in His Word. In college, I was given an assignment. As a matter of fact, our whole class was given an assignment. Uh, and this assignment was so difficult and just so impossible that in the middle of our professor explaining the assignment, I had already zoned out, fully committing not even to do the assignment. I'm like, I'm, I got a good enough grade in here right now to just make a zero on this and still be able to pass the class. And you've been there too, I'm sure. Uh, and so I zone out, the professor, she explains the, the whole assignment, uh, and I said, not doing it. And so the week goes by, uh, and we get back into class, and it's interesting, as I look around the room, I see all of my peers with smiles on their face. They're just smiling, and I'm over here like, this is the worst, you know, this is bad. And they turn their assignments in with just this joy on their face, and the teacher, you know, equally grabs them with a big smile on her face, and I'm like, what did I miss? Like, wh why is ever this was the worst assignment ever? Uh, it turns out... Uh, when I was hearing my uh, peers whispering, it turns out as I zoned out because I was over listening to what my professor was saying about this assignment, I missed the part where she said this was a participation only grade. And so instead of getting a hundred on homework that although was difficult, uh, the way for me to make a hundred on it was already sealed and already done. I zoned out, didn't listen to her assignment and I failed. I was the only student in the whole class to fail. Everyone made 100. I made 100 with the one knocked off. Now, I think the problem with that is often the problem uh, in our lives when we're, when we're trying to think through and understanding uh, how the Holy Spirit works in our world and in the life of Christians. I'm concerned that in the same way that I misunderstood the assignment, in large part because I wasn't paying attention, uh, but even as I understood and saw the work that was a part of this assignment, and even though that it may be difficult, that the way was prepared for it to be completely uh, sealed, that I was going to make 100. Uh, and in the same way, when we think about the Holy Spirit, sometimes we can misunderstand what the Holy Spirit's work is, who the Holy Spirit is. And what I pray is that we would this morning see what the work of the Holy Spirit accomplishes in the life of Christians. In fear that if we don't, we're not only just going to mismanage our own life and mismanage the expectations of what the Holy Spirit will do in our life and is supposed to do in our lives, but we'd even fail to recognize the truly powerful effect that a life lived in obedience to the Holy Spirit has in the faith of the believer. And that's what I pray that as you, you look at the text this morning, that you'll, you'll see that. Because what we need to see as we look at this text is that the Holy Spirit, that Jesus inaugurates on the earth, that is, as he came and he promised the Holy Spirit and as he died for our sins and he was resurrected, he tells his disciples beforehand that when I go, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit and he's going to guide you, and he's going to direct you, and he's going to uh, convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And as I go, which is good that I go, because when I do go, I'm going to give him to you, and he's going to guide you and direct you and empower you to accomplish my will. Now, but we need to understand that the Holy Spirit that Jesus inaugurated, that, that he, he brought to the lives of believers, it doesn't just, and it does this thing, but it doesn't do just this thing. It, he does not just free us from the coming wrath of God, which is very true. That the, Being uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, that is, the seal of your salvation, destines you and seals you for the coming judgment of God, 
When God is going to separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, and those who have the Holy Spirit and those who, who don't. But unfortunately, so often, even when we have that understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit, we miss the other part of the work of the Holy Spirit, at least in part. We don't realize that the work of the Holy Spirit in our life empowers us to bear the necessary fruit that flows out of genuine repentance. You see, that's the other part of the work of the Holy Spirit, is as you're being conformed into the image of Christ, as uh, we're going to read later in 2 Corinthians, as you are being uh, transformed from one degree of glory to another, as you're being sanctified, uh, the Holy Spirit in you is producing in you all manner of good work that proves that you are a disciple of Christ and allows you to participate successfully in the mission of God. And so as you turn to Matthew 3, if you're not already there, I encourage you to open up there in Matthew chapter 3. We'll start in verse 7. I hope that you are able, as we look into this text, to see that this is exactly why the Holy Spirit has come, for both of those purposes. But if you're new, or if you haven't been with us in a couple of weeks, we're in the middle of a series called Preparing for Jesus because that's exactly why John the Baptist had shown up on the scene as a forerunner to prepare for the, to prepare the world for the coming of Christ and his message. And he is prepping them uh, for the soon coming of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so read with me. We'll start in verse 7. After he's sharing his message of the one to come, In verse 7, it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Then he says in verse 12, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What we need to see as we jump into those two texts at least uh, we need to understand, well, who in the world are the Pharisees and the Sadducees? And why did he call them serpents? Uh, we, you need to understand this. And if you write in your notes, put these two names down, Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees in the Bible? Well, the Pharisees were of the class of the common folk. It would be easy to understand them that way. They didn't come from any uh, aristocratic or high-class group of people. They came from a regular class of people, but uh, they clumped themselves together in a sect of Jews who were very committed uh, and very much desired to uh, commit to keep the outward observance of the law. They were all about the outward observance of the law. When it came to the law, as a matter of fact, Jesus says that you must be more righteous than the Pharisees if you want to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, This was in light of the fact that when you looked at a Pharisee in every way possible, They were outwardly conformed to what the law had said, the law of Moses. They were guilty of even creating other laws that the Bible didn't create just so they wouldn't trip over those laws so they wouldn't trip over the other laws. I mean, they were so committed to an an outward, an external observance of the law. That's also the one thing that Jesus often condemned them of. Jesus condemned them of only, merely, Uh, attaching themselves to external manifestations of the law when they had no inward change in their life. As a matter of fact, in a couple of places, he accuses the Pharisees of of being a a dirty cup that's clean on the outside, but dirty on the inside. On the outside, it looks clean, but when you look inside of that cup, it's dirty. He also likens them to a whitewashed tomb. On the outside, it's a beautiful tomb, beautiful white Stone, but on the inside, it's dead and decaying. And although on the outside, they were really committed to keeping the law, they had no inward desire to follow the Lord. That's who the Pharisees were, at least in part. The Sadducees, a completely different sect of Jews, they were of the aristocratic class. They were very wealthy individuals, and they were very politically motivated people, often uh, when you see the caricature of a uh, wealthy person, you're very much, they're very much concerned of how the government's going and how the economy's going. Well, in the same way, so were the Sadducees. Uh, they uh, not only uh, were a very aristocratic group of people, they comprised the priestly and temple authorities. So anytime you, you're reading the book of Matthew and you're hearing about the 
temple authorities or the, the priest, the high priest. You're talking about a class, a sect of Jews called the, the Sadducees. Now, they also uh, only followed the first five books of Moses. So the Pentateuch, what we would see when we look at Genesis, Exodus, Levitic, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was their Bible. The Pharisees, they took the whole Torah, all of the Old Testament. But the the Sadducees, they only listened to the books of, of Moses. And this left a lot of disagreement with them because uh, that means, in a lot of ways, uh, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in things like supernatural occurrences. Uh, they didn't believe in the resurrection, much less the resurrection of Christ in the future. They didn't even believe that anybody was going to be resurrected. And so you can see with that theology in their mind, they're very concerned with whatever is about to happen right now. Because right now is all we got. Because there is nothing after this. That's the, the kind of beliefs and doctrine the Sadducees had. Now, you could understand with these kind of beliefs that there's not a lot of things they really aligned with. They were very different people. One was wanting to keep the outward observance of the law. One wanted to keep their place in society. One believed in five books in the Old Testament. The other believed in all of them. I mean, they were just all over the place in the differences of their understandings, their beliefs, and their lives. And it's interesting, actually, commentators will say that it's interesting that Matthew clumps them together because they were so opposed to each other that they would never classify themselves in the same group of people. But Matthew wants to draw and does a good job of drawing this uh, tight-knit involvement with these two that although they couldn't agree with anything, they could agree with one thing. They hated John the Baptist. And they eventually came to hate Jesus. And in what way they were associated was that there was people that people looked up to. There were Jews that people looked up to in that time, and none of them wanted to follow John the Baptist, and none of them wanted to follow Jesus. And that's the whole point of these two. And so they're really kind of uh, what we should see as a, uh, a group of people that kind of shows the attitude of Israel toward John the Baptist and toward Jesus, at least from a religious leadership perspective. And this is what he says to these two groups of people, now that you know a little bit about who they are. He looks at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he says, You brood of vipers. Isn't that a great way to invite your friends into your house when they knock on your door? <laughs> knock, 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 knock. Welcome, you brood of vipers. Come on in. Have some dinner. That's exactly, however, the tone and the mood that John the Baptist wanted to give off because he understood that the Pharisees and the Sadducees weren't coming to be baptized uh, in preparation for Jesus. They were coming to stick their nose into a situation so they could understand what was going on, so they could figure out reasons to shut it down. And John the Baptist calls them out at the very beginning as they showed up onto the scene. Uh, it's important that he calls them a brood of vipers because as you know in Scripture, it's no secret that as you look through the Old Testament into the New Testament, uh, vipers and snakes and serpents were associated to the work and the will of Satan. And so when he calls them a brood of vipers, he's looking at them and calling them out as saying, you workers of evil, right? you people who are all about the work of your father, the devil. And he calls them out. As a matter of fact, Jesus does this a couple of times. He does it in Matthew 12 and Matthew 23. He calls the Pharisees and the Sadducees serpents as well because they were all about the work of the devil. Although in their own hearts and their own minds, they were all about the work of God uh, they weren't about the work of God that's laid forth in the revelation of God. And here's what he had to say to them. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And this was a central feature of the message of John the Baptist, that there is coming a time where God's perfect justice is going to be poured out on the world and divvied out to each individual who has existed on planet Earth. This is not only just a central feature in the message of John the Baptist, but also central front and center in the message of Jesus Christ. And if you want to go even further, you can look through all 66 books of the Bible, and every one of them point towards an eschatological future reality when God's perfect judgment and perfect justice is going to be reigning and poured out on, on the world and on the lives of each individual. And that's why we can skip down to verse 12 as he talks about this coming judgment, this eschatological event that is going to happen in history future, he points them to verse 12. And he says, here's an analogy of what is to come. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Anybody been clearing their threshing floors lately? Anyone? No? Okay. Well, here's what a threshing floor was. Here's, here's the whole idea. In an agrarian culture, this was a very clear picture of what was going on during that time. They would do is uh, they would plant in uh, months before a wheat harvest. And when that harvest was prepared, they would go and they would cut down the wheat and they would take it to this flat, hard surface called a threshing floor. And then they would take a, a rake or a, a shovel, a winnowing shovel or winnowing fork, and they would take the wheat and they would toss it into the air. And as they tossed it into the air, gravity in the wind would separate the fruitful part, the wheat, and the, the outer shell, the husk, You've eaten corn. Have you ever seen corn in its, in its full glory? You've got to take the husk off? Well, imagine that, but in miniature. And as they tossed this wheat up into the air, they would separate the wheat and the chaff. And gravity would take the weight of the fruit of the wheat, and it would fall back down to the ground. But the chaff, it would float off a little further and hit the ground a little further away. So it was a quick and easy way for the farmers to separate and prepare their harvest. And this is what it says about what they did to the harvest and what we look forward to in the analogy of the coming judgment of God. The farmer took his winnowing fork and he went to clear his threshing floor. And what he did is after he created these two piles, he gathered his wheat and he put it into the barn. You see, the fruit of the labor of the farmer meant that he prepared a place for it because it was useful and good. And so what he did is he took this wheat and he placed it into his barn because he had prepared a place to put that in which he wanted, that which he worked for, that which he took and gave it a place and said, I prepared a place for you. I want you to be here because you are the fruit of my labor. You're the fruit of my work. Now, the chaff, the unfruitful part, uh, the part that is only good to be thrown out, it says here that they took the chaff and it will be burned with unquenchable fire. You see, the tone then takes a whole, different, uh, a whole different level when he says, instead of just throwing the chaff out or you know, creating a little fire over there and just shoveling in the chaff, it says, no, 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 this chaff goes to be burned with unquenchable fire. I mean, there's, there is a kind of justice and a kind of wrathfulness wrapped up in those two words that say, this is more than just getting rid of the unwanted material. This has way more to do with the fact that there's coming a time when the wheat is going to be in the barn and this chaff is not only going to be gotten rid of, but it's going to be put in a place of perfect justice in accordance with the work that it has produced, which is unfruitfulness because that's what chaff is, an unfruitful part of the wheat plant. And so he separates these two things. One goes to be with him and the other one goes to unquenchable fire, which that unquenchable fire is an eschatological reality that as we look towards the end time and the coming time of God coming back to rule and to reign and to pour out his perfect justice, we understand at the end of that timeline, God is going to separate the wheat from the chaff, the wheat and the weeds, the sheep and the goats, those who have the Spirit of God and those who don't, and those who don't will be placed into unquenchable fire. Now, all of that sets us up to at least write it down this way in point number one. We need to expect God's coming judgment. Point number one on your outline, expect God's coming judgment. It's important for us to do this as we open up these verses 7 through 12 because the message was central. As John the Baptist comes on the scenes, the first thing he has to say is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The, the winnowing fork is in his hand and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. Judgment is coming. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? All pointing towards this coming judgment of God on the world. I'll give you a couple of, a couple of texts to look at. The first and second Thessalonians one, jot down Second Thessalonians one, seven through ten. This is a verse that, as we look forward to when Christ is coming back, what it's going to look like, <clears throat> especially when it comes to the coming judgment of God. Second Thessalonians one seven through ten. You don't have to flip there; you can just jot it down. It says this: When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. 
Verse 8, in flaming fire. Can you imagine? That's how Jesus is coming back, in case you were wondering. He's coming back. It's going to be in flaming fire he's coming back, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So where or to whom is judgment coming? Judgment is coming on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. That sounds a lot like verse 12 in Matthew 3 when it says that the shaft will be burned with unquenchable fire. Same concept here. They will be in the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now that is a quite punitive perspective of the coming judgment of God, isn't it? As a matter of fact, when you think of the judgment of God and the justice of God that is coming, that's often the first place you go. And even if you're a seasoned Christian and you're growing in your faith, when you think of the coming judgment of God, that's kind of where you land, isn't it? And unfortunate for us, we don't think further than that. We don't think further than only the punitive part of the judgment of God to look at the promise of God's blessing through judgment. Think about the wheat and the chaff for a minute. How wonderful is it that the wheat and the chaff are separated? Think about the last time you ate your Wheaties in the morning. Aren't you glad that you don't have to chew up your Wheaties and spit out the chaff? Right? Aren't you glad you get to eat your Cheerios and not have to pick out the chaff in there too? How wonderful is it that the wheat and the chaff are separated? How, what a gift it is that the fruitful part is separated from the unfruitful part so the fruitful part can be enjoyed for what it is and for what it's there for. In the same way, we too uh, often spend so much time thinking about the punitive part of the promise of judgment and not the blessing. Because look at verse 10, or at least follow with me in verse 10. Because we do understand that's going to happen. He's coming in his flaming fire to inflict uh, vengeance on those who do not know God or obey the gospel. But listen to verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints... You see that. The tone has already changed from a punitive position of judgment to the fact that when he comes back, the saints are going to glory in him and he's going to glory in the saints. That he's coming back and we're going to say, there he is coming to fulfill his very promises to us. This gospel that we've been proclaiming all our lives, here he is fulfilling it. Here he is. He's taken us, the wheat, and he's separated us and he's coming back to get us. What a blessing that is. He's not done. And look at what else it says in verse 10. He's going to come to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed. He's coming and the saints are going to marvel at him. They're going to look and they're going to say, what a sight. What a beautiful Savior. Oh, to us who were faithful in this time because there he is. The King of kings, the Lord of lords coming back just like he promised. What a marvelous, what a glorifying thing. Because our testimony to you was believed. We're going to glory and we're going to marvel at the Lord. He's going to glory in his saints because we believed in the testimony of the coming of Christ. It's not just a punitive reality, the judgment of God. It's also the equal promise of the blessing of God on those who understood the judgment of God was coming and responded with a repentant faith. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? I'll give you a, another clear example. Read Matthew 13. Look at Matthew 13. Similar to what John the Baptist was saying in verse 12, Matthew 13 shares a similar parable entitled the parable of the weeds. And Jesus says this in Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. It says, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And the master said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and then gather them? And the master said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. 
Let both grow until the time of the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. You see what Jesus says there in verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest, until the time of judgment. And when that time comes, let let them all grow together. And when the time comes, God is going to come and he's going to do the separating. Jesus is going to separate the wheat from the weeds. And he's going to gather the weeds and he's going to bind them up and he's going to gather them and he's going to place them into judgment. Place them into the fire. You need to take note of that because we'll get to it in just a moment in the next few verses in Matthew. But what is he going to do with the wheat? He's going to take the wheat and he's going to put it into the place where he prepared for them. He's going to take the wheat and he's going to place it into the barn that he had prepared eschatologically since the beginning of time that we would be his and we would have a home with him for eternity. You see, we should expect God's coming judgment because Scripture tells us to expect it. You can't get through any book of the Bible without, without it pointing towards this time of God's coming judgment on the world. And for unbelievers, what we understand is they receive what they have earned. Isn't that interesting? Jot down Romans 6.23. When we think about unbelievers, we think about wages. We all want our wages. We all work hard during the week, don't we? And it's nice when you look into your bank account and you see your wages in there, isn't it? Some of us get paid every other week, every week, every month. Uh, and it's nice when we look into our bank account and we see that we've received what we have worked for, that what we earned. And this is what Romans 6.23 says that unbelievers receive. They receive also what they have worked for. And then what have they worked for? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. They're truly receiving something that they worked for. They worked their whole life in their sin, and then they are going to receive the wages of that work, which is death. That's what the unbelievers are going to receive as the payment for what they have done their whole life. Now, believers, followers of Christ, very interesting, paradoxically, we get what we don't deserve. We get something that we've never earned. Romans 6.23, the rest of it, part B, Although the unbelievers, they get the wages of their sin, which is death, here's what the believer gets. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the promise of the believer. But you see, you don't get the promise of the believer in the time of judgment without the punitive part of the wages of sin and eternal judgment with the unbeliever. They both come together. God is going to, as he comes, separate them. And both of those judgments, although have their different outcomes, are coming at the same time, which is why we both look forward to the coming of Christ and are very serious about telling other people about the coming of Christ. Because as we say, Maranatha, O Lord, come, we're also saying, O Lord, we want to see more people saved because when you come, there's, also, there's going to be this, this two-part uh, two judgment. There's going to be the wheat that you're going to take with you. There's going to be the chaff that you're going to burn. And so we look forward to it, but yet we say, Lord, thank you that you are a God who is slow to anger. Thank you that you are patient, not wishing that anyone should perish, but all come to eternal life. We look forward to the coming time of judgment, but we also understand the realities that comes with the time of judgment, that there is a promise of blessing and the promise of the punitive response to God on evil, on sin. Look with me at verse 11 in Matthew 3. Skipping around a little bit, but trying to show you the main themes and the points of Matthew 3, 7 through 12. We understand that this wrath is is coming. The justice of God is, is coming. And this is the message of John the Baptist in verse 11. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance. Remember, the baptism of John was in preparation for Christ. Repent, turn your lives around, turn away from sin, and get ready for the coming of Jesus. But he says, that's how I baptize you, with repentance and preparation. But he, that is Christ, who is coming after me, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. It's very interesting. And if you don't know a lot about the first century, uh, that's a very interesting statement, uh, because rabbis had disciples. 
And part of the role of being a disciple was to meet the needs and take care of what the rabbi needed. And they had to do all manner of things, even to all the way down to untying the sandals of the rabbi. But there was something that disciples weren't required to do. They weren't required to carry the sandals of their rabbi. At that time, that was a work only the slaves did. The slaves of masters carried the sandals. Now, think about the powerful words that have just been spoken when you read it in that light. John says, he is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy of carrying. He's like, not only am I not worthy enough to be a disciple of Christ, I am not even worthy of being a slave of Christ. You see the powerful understanding of what John the Baptist was saying in that text. And he's saying when he comes, the rest of that verse, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Remember our baptism service a couple weeks ago when we say baptize. It comes from the word baptizo, which means to place into. Right? So we, when we read the word baptize, we're understanding it as being placed into or being poured out onto. Right? When we put people in the baptistry, when they go down, water is being poured onto their whole body. Right? They're being plunged and submerged. Uh, their whole body, their whole life is being uh, placed into that water. Well, in the same way, when, when John the Baptist sings this, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That means he's going to pour out on you the Holy Spirit and fire. So we need to understand when we talk about baptism that at least in this text right here, we're looking at two separate kinds of baptisms, two types of baptisms. There is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and there is baptism of fire. Let me take a look at those one at a time. Baptism of the Spirit that when Christ comes, he's going to, through his ministry, provide and create the work of the Holy Spirit being poured out onto his people. We see that happen in its inauguration physically in, uh, in Acts 1 at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is first given to the church. But we see this playing out in the lives of individual believers and, and verses and scriptures like Ephesians 1. Jot down Ephesians 1, 7. And I'll also read verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 7 says this, In him that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, that we have been purchased. We are no longer ours. We have been bought by Christ through his blood for the Lord. And we have, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace. You see, our salvation is according to what Christ has done. Our salvation is according to the riches of his grace, his unmerited favor on behalf of people. That's what the word grace means, unmerited favor. That there is nothing we did to merit this. It is something that has been bestowed on us as a free gift through the blood of Christ. In verse 13. In him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, that is when you heard the gospel and you responded to him through repentant faith, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. See, that's important. Because when you read the text of Ephesians, it is very clear that the Holy Spirit is poured out onto the believer at what point? Salvation. At redemption, at justification. When I respond to Christ, I am then sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see, this is, this is problematic in our culture because if we don't understand the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, we misinterpret what the Holy Spirit is doing and, and what the work of the person of the Holy Spirit is. And what I mean by that is particularly there are beliefs in our culture uh, and across our world that there is a time that you get saved and sometime in the future, then there's a time that you receive the Holy Spirit. That those are two separate events that you can be saved and then at a future point and dwelt with the Holy Spirit. But the problem with that is that the Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So it can't be a separate time in my life. It has to be at the moment of my salvation. I'm also 
indwelt with the Holy Spirit as the promise and guarantee of the hope that I have in Christ until I acquire possession of it in eternity to the praise of his glory. More to say about that in a moment, but that's your first baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, you have baptism of fire. The baptism of fire that, remember the word baptizo means placed into. And so the reality of the matter is we're all going to be placed into Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit, or we're going to be placed into fire and filled with the judgment of God. Those are the two baptisms that uh, are enacted through the work of the Holy Spirit. And you can see that already in the verses that we have already looked at. Verse 12, his winnowing fork in Matthew 3 uh, is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So he's taking the chaff and he's placing it into judgment. He's placing it into eternal fire. That's the picture, the word picture, being baptized in fire, being placed into the judgment. Again, in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9 that we talked about earlier, when Christ comes in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, the fire being placed into that judgment of eternal destruction. That's the idea of the baptism of fire. Now, I get there is, there is a, a nuance we ought to add into the baptism of fire because it is a baptism unto judgment of people who do not know God or obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a, there is a byproduct of that fire that, doesn't, uh, that no one escapes. And what I mean that, even the Christian. Because there is a fire that Scripture talks about that is a purifying fire. And even that fire... Although the Christian isn't placed into that because they're sealed with the Holy Spirit, that fire still burns off in the life of the believer things that don't please God. Right? Uh, even in eternity, we're see, Paul talks about when we get to eternity, everything's going to be thrown into the fire and only what is left over you will receive. And so in that purifying transaction, all our works are going to be thrown into a fire and in all the wood and all the hay and all the straw, that stuff's going to be burnt up. Those are things that are temporary, things that aren't going to last, things that aren't precious. But the silver and the gold and the jewels, those things, they'll come out because those are things that are eternal. Those are rewards that God gives to his people. Even in that context, there's an understanding of the fire, even in the Christian's life, used to take what is pruned and get rid of it. And the same concept here we see even in John 15 is uh, as Jesus is the vine and the Father is the vine dresser and he takes the fruitful vines and he still prunes the vines that are unfruitful and he takes them and he throws them into the fire. He gets rid of them. So in a real way, when we look at the baptism of fire, we understand that it primarily has to do with the judgment of unbelievers. But also attached to that is also the nuance that even Christians are going to have the unfruitful parts of their life judged and burned up. Which again, isn't that a glorious truth? Isn't that a wonderful blessing that God takes that that is in us, that is unfruitful, and gets rid of it, and then purifies us and conforms us into his image according to his glory? Isn't that still a blessing? Do you see the, the beauty of truly the purpose of God in his judgment, that he isn't only judging those who do not know him, but he's also taking that in us, which isn't pleasant to him, nor is it pleasant to us, and then getting rid of it. And what is left is the work that he has done in the life of every believer. Come on, church. It's good stuff. Did I give you point two? Let me give you point two. Write it down this way. You need to understand the work of the Holy Spirit. You need to understand the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I, what I mean when I'm reading these. It's like, you know, we live in this world where we say, well, this is what the Holy Spirit does. Has the Holy Spirit done this in your life? Have you received this from the Holy Spirit? Is, you, know, what, you know, what has been the Holy Spirit been doing lately? It's like, well, let's look at the Bible and see what the Holy Spirit does and what he is doing. And, and of course, we're never going to get a full picture in a 55-minute sermon about all the things that the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer. But there are some really important things that we must understand clearly and unapologetically when it comes to the life of the believer, that these things are things that the Holy Spirit does in our world and unto each and every Every believer. We need to understand that work. We need to understand the work of the Holy Spirit and, and even in our sanctification. You can jot down this verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Got a lot of verses underneath point two. This is one that you need to look at. 2 Corinthians 
It says, And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. So whatever that means, in the first part of verse 18, we at least know that that comes from who? The Holy Spirit. Now what comes from the Holy Spirit? As we live our lives in Christ, with the Spirit of God being poured out onto us, it says that we are being transformed into the same image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Simply said, it's called progressive sanctification. You are being progressively conformed into the image of Christ. When we look at 2 Corinthians, when we read 2 Corinthians, it says this, that uh, you are a new creation. For all those who are in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So I understand that in Christ, it's not just that I'm changing who I am. I am a whole new creation. I am new. I've been indwelt with a new spirit. I'm a new person. And the reality, when I look at 1 Corinthians 3.18, the new person that God has made me, he then takes me and he transforms me from one degree of sanctification to another. That means in a very real way, you and I can both say, I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago. And you can mean that because it's true, because that's the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. You are transformed. You are no longer of the flesh, you're of the Spirit. That's actually what it says in your next verse. I want you to jot down Romans 8, 9. This is why we can't, this is another reason why we can't separate uh, the indwellment of the Holy Spirit and our justification. Because when you look at Romans 8 9, it tells you exactly that explicitly. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, capital S. You are in the Holy Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That is Christ. Think about the implications of that. Anyone who does not have the Holy Spirit does not belong to Christ. There can't be a separate time in my life when I receive the Holy Spirit if it tells me that I can't be Christ's if I don't have the Holy Spirit that he has given. I can't be a Christian for this a long time and then the Holy Spirit come into my life later. They happen at the same time because the seal of me belonging to Christ, the purchase of my soul that Christ has paid is sealed and guaranteed through the possession of the Holy Spirit that I have through Christ. It can't be a, a separate transaction. You need to see that. One more verse I want you to jot down. John 16. John 16, 7 through 8. We want to see the work of the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit doing in our world today? Isn't that a wonderful thing to know? What is the Holy Spirit doing? What is His desire in our world? The mission that God has given Holy Spirit to accomplish here in our world, you can see in John 16, 7 through 8. This is Jesus, and Jesus says, nevertheless, in verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. I think we need to raise our view on who the Holy Spirit is, because even Jesus is saying, it's better that I leave, because it's part of the redemptive plan that I'm exalted to the right hand of the Father, and as I'm exalted to the right hand of the Father, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you the, the helper, which is my presence with you until I come, until I return. The Holy Spirit is a very important person of the triune Godhead. And he says it's important because when I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, think about this, when the Holy Spirit comes, which we saw it at Pentecost, when he comes, he will, his work is to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The work of the Holy Spirit in our world is to convict the world concerning sin because Christ said he came to pay for sin, but yet the world turned from him. And the only way for us to do away with our sin is by turning from our sin and placing our trust in Christ. The Holy Spirit is coming, and he has been on mission in the church to spread this message across the entire planet that you have a sin problem, and Christ has come to pay it. And you will turn from your sin, place your trust in Christ, and you'll be saved. He's going to convict the world concerning sin. And it also says he's going to convict the world concerning righteousness, that the work of the Spirit is righteousness in the life of the believer, in the life of the world. How, do I, how am I righteous? 
I'm righteous through the imputation of the righteousness of Christ and the indwellment of the Holy Spirit that allows me in my new creation identity to then live a righteous life according to the power of Christ in me and the work of the Holy Spirit through me. I'm able to live in righteousness through Christ. Thirdly, in judgment, that the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of judgment, both the punitive realities of judgment, and when we're talking about the world, we're talking about people who turn from God. And so when people think about the coming of Christ, they only can think in light of judgment because that's what's coming onto the world. But for the Christian, when we look at the truth of God's word, we say, wow, look at that. We're going to behold the glory of the Lord. He's going to enjoy us, and we're going to enjoy him, and he's coming. Isn't that a wonderful truth? He's going to be glorified in his saints, and we're going to marvel at him. I'll give you three S's that really sum up how we can think about the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit, uh, one, it seals you for salvation. First S, seals you for salvation. Like we've talked about, I'm not going to talk much more about it because we talked about it in length earlier. Two, sets you up for sanctification. And this is a big reason why when you do discipleship at our church, I hope a lot of you are going through discipleship right now. Uh, every person at church is called to be a disciple, and a disciple means a pupil. So what the Greek word disciple means, matheteo. It means you are a pupil, that you're being instructed, and that you're learning. And I hope that in your learning and in the instruction of the Word of God, you see that your life has been set up for sanctification, just like 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, that you're being transformed into the image of Christ. And then that allows you to understand your need to be successfully set up for sanctification, that it is not you who works, but God working through you. And that as you cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit, you are being sanctified. You are walking in the Spirit. And number three, you're being set apart through unification. Set apart through unification. That's another work of the Spirit. You are set apart through unification. Well, unification to what? You're in union with Christ at salvation. You have been united with His Spirit as a down payment and as a guarantee of your inheritance. And then in light of that, being in union with Christ and in union with His Spirit, you have then, by definition, been placed in union with His church. You see, and that's important because so many of us are willing to say we've been in union with Christ and we're in union with Christ and dwelt with the Spirit, but we also need to realize in a very real way we are in union with His church, with all His believers that are, that are here on earth and especially in the local expression of that church, in union with one another. That's why when we read in Scripture and it says that you are members of one another, we're not talking about members of Dos Rec down the road. We're not talking about signing a piece of paper uh, and paying monthly dues. We're talking about that my fingers and my toes and my legs and my arm and my heart, all those things are members of my body. And in the same way that I can't just disassociate with my pinky, we can't just disassociate with one another, that we are in union with one another in a very real way, in a very spiritual way. And that means that the unity of the believers is a very important concept. That means the working together of the believers is a very important concept. When the scriptures talk about the one another's, that you would love one another, that you would bear one another's burdens, that you would encourage one another, that you would exhort one another, are as important to the Christian doctrine as our justification and our sanctification is the union we have with one another in Christ. That should change the way you look around this room and see brothers and sisters. You aren't just brothers and sisters because you call Compass Bible Church home. You are brothers and sisters because you have been purchased by Christ, adopted by God, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And that changes everything. You see, the Holy Spirit isn't a force. This isn't Star Wars. And the Holy Spirit is, is the third person of the Trinity. It isn't an it, it's a he. And the work of the Holy Spirit is a plan and a will of the third person of the Trinity to work in will in your life for good, for the good and glory of God and for the good of believers and for the good of his church. 
And he transforms us and produces the righteousness in us that causes good works to flow out of us. And that's the last couple of verses I want us to look at in Matthew 3, verses 8 through 10. Look at verses 8 through 10. Because remember, the Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation, uh, separated from the wrath of God to come, but he also uh, is working in us and empowering us to bear the necessary fruit that comes from genuine repentance. The life of a Christian looks like faithfulness. Look at, look at verse 8. This is uh, the message John the Baptist is giving to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And bearing fruit is just simply this, producing the natural commodities that come from the plant. When I look at an apple tree, it's going to produce what? If I look at my strawberry vine, it's going to produce... Okay, and when I look at my apple tree, I'm not going to expect pears to come out of it. And when I look at my, my vine of strawberries, I'm not going to expect blackberries to grow from it. I'm going to expect that which it would naturally produce given its identity. And in the same way as Christians, we are expected to produce what is natural to us in our identity in union with Christ. As the Holy Spirit is working in us, we ought to produce the natural commodities that come with being a new creation in Christ. So we were never saying that, in, that we're, we're talking about... Uh, bearing fruit for salvation. We're not talking about meritorious works that lead to our justification. We're saying that your justification is seen very clearly through the natural commodities that the Holy Spirit produces in those whom he's sealed. And that's what we're saying here. We've got to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In keeping with repentance, it's simply this, that that response that you had when you understood your need for Christ is called repentance. It's turning from that and turning to Christ. And the work of the Holy Spirit bearing fruit is you, and for the rest of your life, bearing fruit in accordance to repentance. That your whole life is the fruit of the decision that you made to follow Christ however many years ago. It's just the natural outflow of the decision that you can point back to when I can look at my life and say, when I was 15 years old at 4 a.m. in the morning, I put my feet on the side of my bed and I leaned up and I prayed to God, take my life, I am yours. I turned from a life lived for myself and I'm giving my life to you and I'm going to do whatever I want. And from that, do whatever I want, no, do whatever you want. And then from that moment on, my life shows that from that moment on, I have followed Christ. The Holy Spirit is bearing good fruit in my life. Simply what the verse means. And in verse 9, it says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Can you imagine just, I mean, those Pharisees and Sadducees are getting are being set on fire, figuratively speaking. He calls them serpents. And then he looks at them and says, And don't presume to say that Father Abraham is, is your key into heaven. For I tell you, God can make children from those rocks before he lets an unrepented person who thinks they're going to get into heaven by their own good looks and good works into his presence. He'd rather raise up rocks to spend a time in eternity. Raise up children from those rocks. I mean, what a, what a statement of condemnation. And he says after that in verse 10, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I want you to be careful when you read that verse. Because when you read that verse and, you, and maybe you misunderstand the context or you jump to conclusions, it looks like if a Christian doesn't bear good fruit, they're not going to go to heaven. They're going to be thrown into fire. That's what it looks like if you're not careful. But you're missing the whole context. Because remember, the whole context of the work of the Holy Spirit is as I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm going to produce fruit. My life is going to look different. And so it is proof, even as I'm looking at verse 10, that we're not talking about Christians here. We're talking about people who can look at the outward, right? When you should, when you look at your life, when you look at the outward nature of the fruit being produced in your life because you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, it should confirm to you a lot of things, right? When you're able to look at the good fruit, not thinking that it, it puts you in a special position with God, but genuinely looking at it and saying, you know, I noticed that in my life before I was filled with the Holy Spirit, those things were not evident in my life. And now, since I turned from my sins, placed my trust into Christ, have been filled with the Holy Spirit through Christ, I then have noticed this entire different life that, that I've been led down by the Holy Spirit. And those are real evidences of a genuine faith. And we should look at those and say, glory be to the Lord that he has showed me the, the genuineness of my faith through how my life has now been transformed and looks different. 
On the other side, when I say even now, when we look at verse 10, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. I'm only left with the one simple truth that that tree must be an unfruitful bearing tree that is not a believer. So we're just saying those who don't bear fruit, that's just evidence that they were never believers to begin with. And those, just like all the other unbelievers, are going to be eternal in eternal destruction. That's why I want you to put it this way in point number three on your outline. You need to bear good fruit as a necessary byproduct of your faith. Bear good fruit as a necessary byproduct of your faith. And I did say byproduct because it is. I mean, it's a, it is a byproduct, but it's a necessary byproduct. I mean, you do a lot of things. You, there, there is a work that is done, but there's also things that it produces in way of you accomplishing a, a particular thing. In the same way, the Holy Spirit seals you for salvation, but a necessary byproduct of being sealed for salvation is the Holy Spirit's going to work in you to transform you into the image of Christ, even as we live from here into glorification. And a byproduct of that is we're going to look more and more like Christ as we live. I don't have a lot of time, but I never do, it feels like. Uh, but I grew up on a couple of farms, and even in college, I tried to revive a farm that I was, uh, that I was a part of as a kid, my grandparents' farm. And the first uh, living creatures I brought onto this farm was about uh, 12 chicks, 12 baby chicks. And I went to the feed store, I bought some chicks, and I brought them, and I rebuilt their cage, and I put them in there. But here's a problem when you go buy chicks to lay eggs. Uh, you can't tell whether or not that chick is a hen or a rooster when they're chicks. You can't. You're just grabbing a whole bunch of them, and you're just hoping that they're hens because we wanted eggs. Uh, and what happens is you have to wait until they start growing up. As they're growing, you start noticing, that looks like a hen, that doesn't look like a hen. But even still, as they're adolescents, it's really hard to tell. Uh, and really, genuinely... You really find out whether or not it's a hen or not when it starts bearing fruit. When that thing starts laying eggs, you're able to say, that's a hen. And you're able, you're looking up there and say, you fooled me for 13 months, but you're not a hen. Right? And then I can take them because you don't want the roosters fertilizing the eggs. Uh, I mean, maybe you're into that, but we didn't want more chickens. We just wanted the fruit of the hens. Uh, and so we separated the roosters from the hens in the same way that God is going to separate the wheat and the chaff I separated the hens from the roosters because the hens were the one producing the fruit, showing their genuine identity for who they were, and the roosters were those who were being false and trying to convey to me that they were something that they never were. That's funny, isn't it? All that to say, like, you, you realize that really your fruit is just you showing your true identity. It's not you trying to prove that you're a Christian. It's not you trying to win your way into being part of a Christian club. It's just, it's just who you are. It's your identity. Like, it's like me growing brown hair. I don't have a choice. That's my identity. That's my genetics. I'm just, I produce brown hair. Well, in the same way as a Christian, it's my genetics. It's my identity. It's just who I am. I produce those things because it's, what, it's who I am. You know, I don't produce brown hair so I get something out of it. It's, I, I don't have a choice. In the same way as a Christian, it just, it's what you produce. Two verses before I let you go. Jot down Romans 7, 4 through 6. Romans 7, 4 through 6. It says, Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ. That is, uh, you don't have to keep the law in order to earn salvation. So it was the Mosaic law. You didn't have to keep the law in order to merit your salvation before a holy God. The law showed us that we needed Christ. And therefore, as we saw that we could not earn our way to God, we turned away from, a sin, we turned away from ourselves. We turned away from this idea that I could meritoriously make my way to God and to his throne. And through Christ, I, I committed to him so that now, what it says, so that you may belong to another. Now I belong to Christ. To him, in verse 4, who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. It says we have been purchased by Christ. We belong to him. We have been united with him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear good fruit for God. But we've been saved here to bear fruit for God. Verse 5, for while we were living in our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, they were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Interesting concept is you're going to bear fruit one way or the other. You're going to bear fruit for life or you're going to bear fruit for death. We're all fruit bearers. 
The question is, are you bearing fruit for the Lord? Are you bearing the fruit of the Spirit? But now, verse 6, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit. Who's the work? Who's the worker here? The Spirit. Now we're serving in the new way of the Spirit, capital S. Now our lives are being led by the Spirit to produce fruits for God. One more, Galatians 5. Jot that down. Galatians 5, 16 through 25. You may know this one. But I say, walk by the Spirit. There's your imperative. Walk by the Spirit. As I'm living, I'm walking in step with the Spirit. And when I do that, I'm not going to gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for they're opposed to each other. Then look at verse 18. If you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the law of the flesh are evident. So he's saying these things are evident that you're not living through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you are dealing with sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why can Paul be so, so definite about the fact that he says, if you're doing these things, you will not enter the kingdom of God? Don't, aren't we all guilty of some of these Fits of anger, anyone? Jealousy, anyone? Anyone creating any strife with their spouse recently? No? Okay, maybe you all are going to heaven. That's good. <laughs> but he can say these things because it's not that you don't, it's not that you have never will again sin at all, but that isn't your identity. Now, I'm not giving you freedom to go sin because you can't just go sin and say, that's not who I am. Well, it definitely is. It's what you're doing, right? And so when you do sin, you're able to look at the mirror and see Christ and say, this is not who I am. That's not my identity. I repent from that. And God, I pray that you would work in me through your Holy Spirit to conform me, that that desire would not be my desire, that I would desire the things that you desire. Did you see that? You're not getting away with just living in sin just by saying, that's not who I am. Well, it, it actually is. Your fruits actually show who you are. That's why if that's a fruit in your life, you see yourself living that way and, and continually to live that way and continuing to live that way, it is a fruit of your real identity. Not saying that as a Christian, if you deal with that, if you've dealt with that, or if you do deal with that, you can't look in the mirror and say, this is a bad fruit that I'm bearing and I give it to the Lord and the proof that turning away from that and walking in step with the Spirit and me not having to deal with that anymore is actually a good fruit proving that I am a disciple of Christ and that I, the identity that I have is Christ. Does that make sense? We have, to, we have to nail that down. Because when we say that, then we can look at this and say, listen, if that's how your life is identified, then you won't inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit in verse 24 is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I love this because it says against such there is no law. There is not a law in the Bible that can condemn those things. It tells you that those things aren't good and aren't perfect. I mean, you're never going to go to someone and say, you're loving too much. Too much love going on. Sin. Look at the Bible. Too much. You're not going to have someone look at you and say, you're being way too kind. I think the Bible says something about being too kind. You're not going to look at people and say, you're being way too self-controlled. You're, you're debaucherous sin. You're way too self-controlled. Never going to have that because there are no laws against those things. And so as we're living in those things and we look at the word of God, you're not going to feel the conviction of those things being wrong in your life. Which remember, the whole work of the Holy Spirit is to convict you of sin. And so when we do sit under the teaching of God's word, we get convicted sometimes. Me too. Because the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. But when I'm living in the fruits of the Holy Spirit and I sit under the teaching of God, I may be convicted here and there, but I'm going to be encouraged and exhorted to live more for the Lord because I realize that everything that the preacher is saying, everything that the Bible is putting before me are laws of God. And I'm, and I'm living in those through the power of the Spirit. And so I'm not condemned or convicted in those things. It's a, it's a necessity of having the Word of God that shows us how we ought to live, how we ought to live our lives through the work of the Spirit. Much more to say about that, but I don't have time. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The last thing I'll say before I let you go, 
I think one of the biggest mistakes we make when it comes to the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in our lives is we like to say that we are the exception to the rules. Don't you, don't you, we, we often like to do that, but I'm an exception. 99.9% .9 of people deal with this one thing, but we're all the 0.1%, right? But not everybody can be the 0.1% because most everyone else has to be the 99.9% .9 of people. Uh, and like, people like to think they're the exception, including myself. And what we have to do is say, you know, you have the omnipotent third person of the Trinity as a Christian that indwells in you. And what we can never say is accuse God of not being powerful enough to change you. The fact of the matter is the Holy Spirit was a creative agent in history. And when we say that God created the universe, you are saying that the Holy Spirit created the universe. And if that Holy Spirit lives in you, is all-powerful. He's all-powerful and competent and potent to change you from the inside out. And so let us never be ones to say, well, the Holy Spirit, whether it's by how we talk or how we explain to people that my life is just different, I don't think Christ is changing me that way. Let us never be people who say the Holy Spirit isn't powerful enough to change me. Because if the Holy Spirit can change Paul, the Holy Spirit can change me, and the Holy Spirit can change you, the Holy Spirit can change anyone. And that is his work to conform us into his image. Let us remember that. Let us look forward to when Christ is coming back to judge and let us look forward to marveling at his presence. Let's pray. God, I do pray to you. God, I know that sermons like this, uh, God, are so, uh, so divisive in our culture, I'm afraid to say. It, it's, it's hard, God, saying that sermons that are so pivotal to the lifeblood of any church can also be a kind of sermon that can be divisive. And what I pray even as we talked about earlier about the unity of the church and the bond of peace, uh, that our church would come together in one accord, uh, affirming your word and saying your word says what your word says, and then we will conform our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit to that. Uh, God, and even in our own life with ultimate humility, even as I look into the mirror of my own life, uh, and as those in this room do too, just say, we missed the mark. We missed the mark. Let us then turn from that in uh, an, an honest assessment of how we thought about you, maybe, and how it's been wrong, or, or how we can understand the work of your Spirit in our lives, and then say, God, that's what I want. I want your will. Let us be that church, I pray. God, let us uh, go out this week, and let us never again uh, think of, uh, of your Spirit in, in an impersonal force or this something that I can't relate to, but that the all-powerful third person of the triune Godhead that lives in me, that is working in me, that is empowering me, that sealed me for eternity and, and preparing all good works ahead of me that I would walk in them faithful to you. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.